It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Derek Hall graduated from Arizona State University before beginning a career in baseball, spending a dozen years with the Los Angeles Dodgers in a variety of roles. He left the game for the business world, eventually returning to Arizona, where he's turned the D-backs into one of the most fan-friendly franchises in sports, not to mention a place that has been recognized repeatedly as one of the best workplaces around. I sat down with Hall for a wide-ranging conversation, hitting on a variety of topics, including his beginnings in the game, his very public battle with prostate cancer, and whether he thinks he can give Jimmy Fallon or Stephen Colbert a run for their money as a talk show host. Enjoy this conversation with D-backs president and CEO, Derek Hall. Here at Arizona Diamondbacks, President and CEO Derek Hall. Derek, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Great to it. be here. Thanks, Bob. You grew up in Los Angeles. Were you a big Dodgers fan growing up? I grew up a huge Dodger fan. Yeah, I was a, uh, I was a Dodger fan. Uh, my mother was a Dodger fan. My father was a father and brother were Angels fans. So we spent time both watching Dodgers and Angels. But I was a, a diehard Dodger fan. And when I wasn't at a game, I was listening or watching Vince Scully uh, each and every game that I could. Your dad worked in the newspaper business. Did journalism interest you at an early age? Sure, yeah. I, I went to school with broadcast journalism in mind. Uh, my father was more on the publisher, GM side of, of newspaper, having gone up through the sales and advertising route. And uh, newspapers have always been a big part of my of my life. But you know, in L.A. alone, I think he worked for uh, three or four different papers. You know, the L.A. Times, the Daily News. Um, we, we were all over. So I moved my entire life. Uh, because of his uh, his job and his career, but I always remained a big baseball fan, and in particular, a Dodger fan growing up. What was your peak as a player? As a player? My peak was in high school. Yeah, it was about as good as I got. I uh, knew I couldn't play as well. My dad was a he was a All-American catcher in the state of Arkansas. He actually had uh, a scout from the Cardinals come and try and sign him at his house, and, and his father, my grandfather at the time, said that wasn't enough, and uh, sent him out of the house and they never had another knock on the door from another <laughs> scout so but his love for baseball you know it was nice that he could he could live vicariously through me when i was starting my career you received your bachelor's in broadcasting uh and journalism at arizona state did you think a career in television was where your life was headed i was going to try and use that as a bridge to get to baseball and to get into sports i just didn't know how and uh you know it was my father again who actually called me up one day after after school and said, hey, quick, turn on the TV, and I believe it was on ESPN at the time, but said, uh, there's this program on Ohio University and uh, the sports administration program. And so I watched, and I said, wow, that's really a good way to get not only in, in, in sports, but in particular with the Dodgers, and they had an internship that I went after and fortunately got. Now, I was turned down the first time I, I tried to get into Ohio University and that sports ad program, but it was because of him, and that was really the, the best method. I mean, I was working three or four jobs, uh, after after college, wondering how I would get into sports and was frustrated and even tried the winter meetings one year like everybody else trying to get a job and it didn't work. But fortunately, it's all worked out and it, it was really because of that move, you know, watching and, and ultimately visiting and, and getting admitted to Ohio University. You started with the Dodgers with that internship uh, in the Florida State League in Vero Beach, 1992. Yeah. What's that experience like? 
It was tremendous. I mean, for me, you know, not only working for the spring training operations in Vero, but also the Florida State League team that we had there, um, the Vero Beach Dodgers. And so, you know, you're working single-A games and you're doing everything. You know, you're pulling the tarp at range, you're stocking the shelves in the concession stand, but you really get to know each and every season ticket holder, uh, every casual fan. You learn what, what their preferences are. They like frozen lemonade or, you know, they like Budweiser. And, and uh, you do everything. You're, you're selling tickets. You're, you're stamping the lucky stamp for a free car wash in the magazine, you know, the program. Um, it was a blast for me, and it, and it was the best way for me to learn the business from the ground floor up. And spring training was a way for me to interact with a lot of the obviously major league personnel and, and uh, executives, and got to got to know a lot of them. And fortunately, Peter O'Malley, um, you know, took a liking to me and, and brought me out to LA, which is what I ultimately wanted to do. So you spend a dozen the next twelve years yeah. with the Dodgers, working your way up to senior vice president of communications. What's it like working for the team you grew up rooting for? Yeah, it was it was tremendous. I mean, it was a dream come true, and it, it was a pinch me moment. You know, going back to the name Vin Scully to think. And I remember telling my wife this. I said, I cannot believe that Vin Scully reports to me. You know, <laughs> and, and I used to also say, he's the one employee who could fire me if he wanted to. And, and uh, you know, we were very close. Uh, but it was it was great. I mean, working with Tommy Lasorda and with Steve Garvey and Bill Russell and Reggie Smith and all these guys that I, you know, grew up watching. Uh, and now I'm working shoulder to shoulder with them every day. It was, it was a thrill. And, and learning under Peter O'Malley was was a real treat. Uh, Peter cared about the fans, he cared about his executives, he cared about culture. And I think he was the first one to really teach me the importance of, uh, of, of making the customer come first, but also focusing on the employee. Whereas here, we say, you know, the customer doesn't come first, the employee does, because if he or she feels appreciated, rewarded, developed, uh, respected, he and she are then going to treat the customer the way that we expect them to. But it really, it, it was, I think, formed at an early age in my career from Peter. We will talk a lot more about that in a little while when we get to your Diamondbacks career. Uh, with the Dodgers, you served through three ownership changes. What, yes. what are the challenges of, of making each of those transitions as a new group comes in to run the club? It can be a challenge, I mean, for sure. I, I think the transition to uh, from Peter to Fox was a pretty smooth one, um, and most of the executives stayed in place. So it was really turnkey. It was keep doing what you're doing. And they just provided a lot of resources. They really did. Uh, they had, a, um, you know, they had, an, had an appetite to win, and they were investing in the team. Yeah, but there were there were a few others, and of course, um, then they changed uh, managing general partner Daly uh, to Bob Daly, and then from there, of course, it went to the McCourt. So you know, quite a few changes. It can be tough on on some. I rolled with it. I thought it was okay. You know, my job didn't change much other than uh, being a point person really during those transitions and during the due diligence. I was a person that was interviewed frequently, and of course, had to help with the, the communication of the changeover and also the press conferences, et cetera. But, uh, you know, I enjoyed it. It's no different than being a young kid moving from school to school and being a new kid in town. I enjoyed it and, and enjoyed working for other owners because you also, you, you have to adjust and you have to learn to deal with different styles. They all had incredibly different styles. It's like working for different bosses as we all have. No different than that. I think it, it really matures us and helps us develop as as executives. You've been credited with reuniting Fernando Valenzuela with the organization in 2003. Given that you grew up a Dodger fan, I'm sure Fernando was a big fan favorite of yours. What was it like to be part of that process, and how did that all come about? Fernando's one of a kind. He's great, and you know he and I built a, a really strong relationship. Um, I had a good relationship with a lot of the former players, and Fernando was one who wasn't really close with the organization after after he had left. So uh, it was a, a project of mine to reel him back in. We became good friends. We became golfing partners, and. Uh, 
you know, ultimately I convinced him to come over and, and give him the flexibility to do so, to ease into it, but to be a broadcaster because he's such a personality, to help with Hispanic marketing, to help with corporate sales. And he was willing to do everything and anything once he came over and, you know, still there as a, as a result. I couldn't help but notice in the middle of your run with the Dodgers, you spent the 99 season hosting a morning talk show on the team's flagship station, served as the host of their game day pregame show. Uh, you were a weekend sports anchor, I think, that year for right. NBC. Did you think about going back to broadcasting full-time? What, what, what led to that, that sort of one-year blip in the middle? Well, your question about ownership change, it was after another ownership change, and I thought, wow, you know, this might be a time to, to look elsewhere. And they actually came to me, our flagship station, and asked if I was interested in doing a morning drive radio show. And I thought, wow, the number two market in the nation, I'm going to give it a shot. And they had a lot of fun. Uh, with that, the other jobs came along and found myself filling in on weekends on in, in KNBC, Enjoyed it, but it was just the opposite. I, I couldn't wait to get back into baseball. I was really missing baseball. It was tough for me to, to be at the ballpark every day in a different capacity. Uh, those relationships that, that we had built there weren't weren't the same in that in that role. You know, being either on radio or pregame, and and uh, I, I just couldn't wait for the opportunity to get back in baseball, and that's what ultimately lured me back. The other thing that kind of stood out when I was looking down your resume, you spent a year working for KB Home. Yeah, uh, Fortune 500 company based in LA. What what prompted your your move for a year outside of baseball? Great question. So I thought uh, it would be interesting to see if I could take everything that I learned in sports and in baseball in particular and apply that to uh, a, a completely different industry, corporate you know industry, a Fortune 500 company that was booming at the time. I mean, you're talking you know seven billion dollar company and delivering. 40,000 homes a year, and, and I had a blast. That was also another year, and I couldn't wait to get back into baseball, but I did it, and I had fun. I mean, ringing the bell on Wall Street and, you know, having to convince investors that it was the, you know, that it was the, the, the right investment. It was a different kind of pressure, but I truly enjoyed it. I just never had a passion for, for moving dirt, you know, <laughs> unless it's in the infield. Right. Yeah. Uh, so you joined the Diamondbacks May 2005 as a senior VP of communications. You ended up serving in several capacities before being named the president of the club in 2006 in September. What drew you to Arizona? I have ties here. You know, I went to, as you mentioned, Arizona State University. Uh, my wife also went there. We met there. She's from Tucson. We got married in Tucson. My in-laws still live in Tucson. So anytime we came back here with the Dodgers, uh, I, I would sit at Chase Field or Bank One Ballpark back then and and think, wow, this was a this would be a nice place to land. I'd love to get back here because it still felt like home. Uh, I moved around so much my whole life. I never really had one place where I could say, yeah, that's where I set my anchor. So, you know, the the, the last place it really felt like home to me was was ASU. I mean, I was there for four plus years. Um, you know, had that attachment, had that tie. Uh, had received a, a young alumni award from ASU. So anytime I came back, it it just felt like home, and it was a I think it was an easy easy attraction for me. Uh, three years or so, uh, two and a half years after you become president of the club, CEO title is added. How does that change your your day to day responsibilities? Well, it, it didn't change much other than you know now baseball was uh, was reporting directly to me as well. So you know baseball was more parallel with me, and we had a different CEO, and baseball would go up through through me, but ultimately to the CEO. Whereas now uh, it was it was overseeing the entire organization, but it didn't change much my day to day activity other than. Uh, having more of a more of a responsibility to each of the investors and owners, you know, not just the general partners, that certainly changed. So it was much more interaction, much more reporting structure when it comes to to those that had invested in the team. Though at the end of the day, our managing general partner Ken Kendrick is the one who you know we answer to. You've taken a lot of steps to create what people have called the best fan experience in sports, uh, both at Chase Field and Salt River Fields. The common perception is that all fans want to win a winning team. 
have you found that even when there's not a winning team on the field, that there's a way to satisfy fans in terms of the experience to at least say, look, I can't guarantee that we're going to win tonight, but you're going to have a good time regardless. That's exactly it. That's the philosophy because we know we're not going to win every game. We're not going to win every home game. And how do you send fans home after a loss and they say, that was great, I can't wait to go back? Or they're going to be there late Saturday night and you lose. Season ticket holder has to pick right back up and get there early Sunday morning for the next game. So the fan experience plays a really key part. And, and we have no control over how we're going to play on the field. We can make moves. You know, but we have no control of the injuries or over bad luck or good luck, the way the ball bounces or the schedule. What we can control is our fan experience, how we treat our fans, and what we do in the community. Those two factors can make a fan base very proud, regardless of the wins and losses on the field. One of my favorite quotes that I've seen from you is, when a fan spills popcorn, I want somebody out there with a broom the minute they walk <laughs> away. That's the way it's done at Disney. That's we whistle while we work, too. We have fun just like at Disneyland. Disneyland doesn't have wins and losses, yeah. right? Everybody goes to Disneyland and goes on the rides and takes a picture with Mickey and they go home with a smile on their right. face and a pair of mouse ears on. When wins and losses are such a crucial part of your business, how difficult is it to try to take that Disney kind of approach? It's, it's a challenge, but I think, you know, even Disney, I think they probably do have their losses. You know, if you're, if you're looking at an hour and a half wait, you're disappointed and you're not going to wait in line. So what do you have to do? You have to re create and reinvent yourself as Disney has done where now you've got fast pass and now you have fast pass on your phone so you don't have right. even have to, so you know it's it's I think we always have to challenge ourselves to accommodate our customers but um, the wins and losses play a big part and we we like most markets our fans are fair weather if we're playing well they're going to show up if not not necessarily so I think that's when myself as a leader has to be even more out there I think when we're playing well it's not important for me to be seen or heard. You know, let's give the credit to Tori Lovello and Mike Hazen and, and others. When we're not playing well, I'd rather get out there and, and talk to the customers and, and hear their complaints. And I'll stay up all night if I have to. And I've done it before, answering emails or answering, you know, social media, which I've taken a step back a little bit because it was, it was ruling my life. Uh, but I understand. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's really important then to, to really communicate and talk and let fans know we too are frustrated. We have a plan. Here's our plan. Stick with us. We're going to be okay. And again, you know, they it, it leads to more communication and more emails. But that's okay. At the end, they're going to stick with you. Well, as a father of two boys who used to visit me in spring training every year, we'd go to Disney World. Fast Pass was maybe the biggest game changer ever. There you go. It was. <laughs> that's right. Uh, philanthropy has very been very important to you in your life. Last year, the, the team surpassed the 50 million mark in charitable contributions during their 20 years. About 80 percent of that coming under your watch. When did that become such an important uh, issue for you, not only personally, but, but with the club? So there's two, yeah, two answers. Personally, and I'll go back to Peter O'Malley, uh, I can recall being in, in Florida one spring, and you know I'm making, I want to say, $16,000 a year, and it's my first job, and, but I didn't think he knew who I was, and he came up, and there was a workplace campaign going on at the time. And I'll never forget, he said this morning, he stopped on his bike and he says to me, Derek, I just looked at all the, the list of those that are contributing and I realized you're not on there. And so I said, well, you know, Mr. O'Malley, with all due respect, I don't make that much. And he said, without skipping a beat, then don't give that much. And that was powerful. You know, that, that's a lesson that I've taught to my family. Give something. You know, if you can give money, give money. If you can give time, give time. If you can volunteer, volunteer. Then you fast forward to... Uh, being president of this organization and, and probably the most generous person I've ever seen is Ken Kendrick, our managing general partner. And this is a guy who uh, in 2007 we're, we're having a terrific season 
he calls me up. I'm on the road near the end of the season, one month left roughly. And I'm in Atlanta, and he says, hey, how we doing? Projections, hey, we look great. Yeah, I know. And he says, I'll tell you what, let's do something extra now for the, for the community. And I thought, wow. You know, I said, well, Kim, we're probably going to give, you know, 3 or $4 million to the community this year. And now it's up to five, six, you know. And he says, well, that's okay. Let's still do something for children's charity. Why don't you give it some thought? So I called him up. I said, how about for the remaining games, I think there were 30 games, uh, home games left, what if we gave a certain amount of, you know, dollars, specified amount from, from our ticket sales from this point forward back to children's charity? So what do you think? And I said, how about a buck? He said, how about five bucks? And I said, well, Ken, you know, at the time, I said, we have $5 seats upstairs. He said, make it five. You know, and that, that was, I, I still have chills thinking about it, but that was another $800,000 we gave back to, out of the generosity of, of, of Ken Kendrick. And that's who he is. So he's taught me a lot. The fact that we give and give and give, I, I think he's the one that, that motivates me and our community affairs staff more than anybody. And he is, he's the one who will always, he'll get us started. You know, if you can raise this much, I'll match it. I don't want anyone to know. I mean, the guy's incredible. He's an incredibly generous, and, and all of our owners are. And this community is. We're about to have our evening on the Diamond event um, on the 24th. We raised close to $2 million that night alone, and that's because of the people in the audience. You know, when we raise so much money now with 50-50 raffle, as other teams are too, that's because of our fans. You know, it's just, it's a partnership. And we, we believe we're a community asset. We understand our social responsibility. Bud Selig was always big on social responsibility. Rob Manfred's taking that torch and run with it. But there's nobody who understands or defines social responsibility more than, than Ken. Aside from everything the club does, you personally serve on or are associated with 25 boards, most of which are charitable causes. Yeah. Where do you find the time to do so much? It's tough. And there's some that, well, I'll have to say I can't make it to all of your meetings, but they really want us involved, which is good. Uh, but I try and, as long as it's calendared, I'll do it. There's some days where I'm very board heavy, you know, or some weeks where I'm, I'm going board after board after board. There's others where I'm not. Depends what, what duty is calling. If it's a legal issue that's going to take a week of my time, I've got to focus on it. If it's baseball ops and we're looking at the roster or big free agent signing or trades, I'm going to give all my attention to them. There's times where it's, it, it's all, you know, PR, where they just wind me up and send me out to station to station, and, and I enjoy doing that too. But you've got to fit it all in. It's about time management. Uh, the one thing I, I am guilty of not doing enough of is spending more time with my, my family, you know, but they've always done a really nice job of coming to me uh, at the ballpark. You know, got one here right now on break from Duke, and uh, he came to, to be with me. You talked before about the one fan at a time approach. Uh, you hand out business cards all the time at games and conduct online chats with fans. Are fans ever surprised at your level of personal involvement? I, I do get some of that, yeah, but I, it's so easy for us to do. I wish all 30 did it, and I think they, they're a certain amount uh, that do as, as much, if not more, than I do. But I'll see someone out wearing a D-back shirt or cap, and I take my card out, and on the back of my card it's you know two free tickets, and I, hey, way to wear that cap, and then, whoa. Um, I enjoy that. Or I'll see a family with kids wearing D-backs gear, and they're eating in a restaurant, and I'll call over the server and say, let me, let me take care of that. A lot of times not even you know, letting them know that where it came from. But, uh, yeah, I, I enjoy it. it. You know, we're lucky. We're in the jobs that we are. We're, we're, we're very fortunate to be in the business of creating memories. And so why wouldn't we? Let's I share. I read you also keep a box of, of hats in your car, and if you see somebody with the old hat on, you'll, yeah. you'll give them the new hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't have to do that anymore, really. But uh, <laughs> I had to for a long time. And that was a tough part in our history. You know, going from the purple and teal to Sedona Red, uh, there was a lot of animosity towards the organization. Understood people are very passionate and loyal, and 
uh, I would see those caps and I would just simply get out of the get out of my car, pull it out of the trunk, and say, "Hey, I love the old colors. The cap looks great on you. You want to keep it? Wear it great. But here's a new one just in case." Do people ever look at you like you're crazy? Like who is no, this guy? No, it's always, "Hey, <laughs> thanks." And you know what? They they for the most part wore it. Okay. <laughs> uh, you also established a season ticket scholarship program. Uh, 57 families being given tickets worth more than $350,000 since 2008. Why is that important to you? I mean, you're bringing somebody into the ballpark at your cost, basically. Yep. Uh, is that about promoting the team? Is that just about trying to spread the, the, the game to other people? How did that all come about? It, it's probably a combination of all of that, and it's it's just trying to, trying to do what's right for people that are going through tough times or maybe they had a change in circumstance. The way it started when we had that economic downturn a few years back and we had season ticket holders that had to give up their season tickets, and I thought, how can we keep them until they can afford it one day? And so we started the season ticket program for them, scholarship program, and then we expanded it. We had people nominate themselves, nominate neighbors, family, friends, um, for people that were, you know, that deserved it. And it, there's some amazing stories. People just, hardships, hard times, can't afford it, but they, they deserve to see baseball too. I can't say that I know you well enough to know your sense of humor, but I don't get the Jimmy Fallon, Stephen Colbert uh, vibe from you necessarily. Yet every Friday, first Friday of every month, you have On the Couch with D. Hall with, yeah. the, with the team employees. How did that talk show, so to speak, come about? It, it was a new creative way to have our monthly meetings, and I actually, it, it was fun. It's a way for me to do top ten type you know, routines and jokes and impersonations. Um, we've toned them down a little more over the years. <laughs> as times in the workplace have asked for, uh, rightly so. But we have a blast. I mean, I used to get up at a monthly employee meeting, and it was just, it was boring. You know, it was me standing at a podium talking, and I didn't want that. So we wanted more interaction and more creativity, and so the employees have gotten involved too, whether we're doing games. We'd have family feud, department against department, and then we started doing, uh, pulling a, a department out of the hat once a month where they would come up with their own creative song about the organization and about their department and put and put it on for you. We've done so much with those meetings, but it's a chance to get everybody together, give them free lunch, uh, recognize people who are now in the President's Council, talk to the outgoing members, bring in a guest. You know, we'll bring in the governor, the commissioner, uh, different folks, the mayor, uh, media personalities. It's been, it's been a really nice recipe for, uh, of success for business environment meetings. You serve on MLB's diversity committee and the commissioner's on-field diversity task force. How do you think the league and its teams have done a good job in terms of diversity? Tremendous, and your timing of the question couldn't be better. This is when uh, this is the day where Billy Bean came in to talk to our players this morning, and he noted how we're one of the leaders when it comes to diversity and inclusion, and I was very proud of that. Uh, he mentioned a few employees that we have who you know happen to be, as he said, out, which is great. Very proud of that. Um, the fact that we do serve on those committees, we work with him side by side on initiatives, and we hosted a diversity. Uh, they used to call it the Diversity Summit. We hosted the last one here. It's been terrific, and I think baseball's made tremendous strides, and I think our baseball players uh, in general, you know, I think the culture of baseball has always been inclusive. You think back to, you know, Jackie Robinson. Um, you think about how important it is for us to be in this community and to have Salt River Fields here, the first on Native American land, you know, to be able to provide jobs for those that are, Native American, and we want our workplace to look a lot like and represent much of the the demographics and diversity in this market. So for us, it's obviously you know we're going to look for a lot of Hispanic employees and a lot of Native American employees and African American and Asian. And I think diversity is very important, not only with employees but also with vendors and those that you do business with. 
uh, you know, women and diversity-owned businesses are very important to us. September 2011, you guys are battling for the NL West title and you're diagnosed with prostate cancer. You opted to make the news public in order to encourage men over the age of 40 to get tested. It's a very personal decision. What made you decide to go public with that? You know, again, I think there's a responsibility with, with my position that uh, if I could drive awareness or convince uh, others to, you know, mine was found by, by accident, thank goodness. Um, and so really to encourage and educate men and drive awareness, and I think I have that ability to do so just because of the, the platform that we stand on. So I, I think it's my responsibility. And if I can save a life here or there, um, I also think it's, it's who I am. I mean, in, in this organization, people know I'm always going to be honest, transparent, uh, and it wouldn't be me if I had kept it to myself, and everyone would have known there's something wrong. And my wife, right away, I got permission from her. She said, you know, it wouldn't be you if you didn't. And when she was diagnosed uh, a year and a half ago with triple negative breast cancer, I told her I was going to let the world know, and, and she's not a really public person, but she understood, and she went for it because I said we could we could save lives or change lives. I saw that J.J. Putz handed you the ball from yeah. his save that night. You said, I can't take this. And yeah. you said, I'm going to give it back to you when I'm cancer-free. Did That's you? Right. I did, yeah. So that was in San Diego where I found out that night he did get the save. He literally walks off the mound, steps over the, the wall, hands me the ball, and said, this is for you. And I said, no, you keep it. Because it was a big big save for him. And uh, and he said, I'll tell you what, when you're cancer-free, why don't you sign it and give it back to me? And we did that. So he's That's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. What did it mean to you to have the support of the whole organization from players and employees, everybody in between, as you were going through your treatment and recovery? It's so powerful. And it just shows what what a family we are and what culture we have. And for everybody to wear these, you know, they were red bracelets, D-Hall, D-backs, and, and uh, they tricked me thinking I was going up to do an interview and I went upstairs uh, right after I'd had the press conference and there were 300 of our employees, you know, clapping as I walk in and, and there were hugs and tears and they, they put on those bracelets and said, we're gonna be with you every step. So it's, it's powerful. MLB promotes prostate cancer awareness every year around Father's Day. You've said that you've heard from a number of former players and managers after you were diagnosed, and I think you called it a fraternity. It is. Uh, how meaningful is it to you that the league gives this cause so much attention on an annual basis? It's great, and especially you know when you look at, at the fans that are going to baseball games, of course, I think we're, we're probably about as diverse as anyone because we do have a lot of mothers that, that make the decision to go to baseball games, but you're always going to see your father or grandfather or uncles, you know, someone in the stands, so it's important to drive that message, hope for men. Baseball covered it with MLB. And now I do it with minor league baseball. So every Father's Day, minor league baseball, I've got pamphlets that I hand out about the pro-state, which is like pro-state, but pro-state, pro-state of mine, uh, foundation that, that I started. And uh, we give away Louisville slugger bats to one lucky husband or, or grandfather or, or father at the games, every one of those hometowns. And then we give out little keychains, uh, little wooden bats. So we'll do more. We're going to continue to do more. But as Major League Baseball covers... Uh, you know, the, the MLB games, I'm going to continue to do it at the minor league level too. So we cover everybody, every baseball fan. How important was it for you and for the organization to host the All-Star Game in 2011? It was awesome. And I, I felt like such a pest. I mean, I kept bothering the commissioner year after year after year. You know, we're ready. We could do this. And I know people were afraid of the heat. And it was, I, I think it was as good an All-Star Game as there ever has been. And uh, it just worked. But, yeah, it's, it's a time for you to showcase your staff to showcase your city, to showcase your ballpark. It really goes on this big international stage. And as a result, after that, people want to come visit it. You know, they see it on TV, they're intrigued. Uh, they want to come see it in person. And, and uh, I, I was very proud of the job our people did. In fact, afterwards, we decided to give all of our employees, every one of them, uh, the ring that the players get. So everybody got an NL All-Star ring that year, too. You've promoted this area 
a lot throughout your career. A couple years ago, the Arizona Republic called you one of 16 Arizonans to watch, citing your influence on the community. Aside from wanting the team to succeed, obviously, why is the growth of this Phoenix area so important? No, I think we all benefit, obviously, right? I mean, if, if this area continues to grow and attract businesses and the education uh, continues to improve, it's only going to benefit the ball club and the other sports here, too. Uh, I, I believe in this region. I believe in, in the Southwest, but I really love Arizona. I think it's a remarkable place to live. I think um, you know our, our, our elected officials have, have shown uh, that they, too, are on the same page with the, with the corporate citizens here and trying to make it grow. And I think we all, again, going back to responsibility, we all have a responsibility to, to help this place economically. Um, and then if we can help solve some of the social problems here, which we try and do through our community, whether it's impacting um, the number of homeless or you know, those children with autism. I mean, so many different areas that we can help because of who we are. And that's, that's why it's so important for me to invest in this region and this community. And in the end, it's going to benefit us as well. You mentioned the color change from purple and teal yeah. to Sedona red. There was a lot of talk when you introduced a number of uniforms in 2016. <laughs> what went into the decision to have not only new colors and a new uniform, but so many varieties of it. Yeah, so we try and be, you know, I encourage everybody to be as, as innovative and pioneering as possible. And, you know, there were a couple of VPs that had this concept and this idea to try and connect more with the, with the younger players. And we had seen some of the uniform changes when you look at college football and, and some of the other sports where uh, a lot of the design that we incorporated seemed to be the trend and where they were going. So we, we, uh, we gave it a shot. And, and it was one that I probably would have been even a little more hesitant about. But again, you want to empower your, your staff and your employees and you want to get behind them and, and uh, show support and take chances. Let's talk a little baseball. There's a lot that goes into a major free agent signing. Uh, take me through the process of signing Zach Granke to the largest deal in team history. I assume that it's a difficult process and decision to make such a large commitment and, and dedicate such a large portion of your payroll to one player. Yeah, it, it is tough, and it, it does present a challenge. We felt at the time that we were probably um, an ace away from being very, very competitive. And, you know, Zach was, uh, you know, he was the cream of the crop at the time. And he's, what a difference he's made. I, we don't make the playoffs last year without Zach, obviously. He was truly our ace. Um, but it was, a, it was a major commitment. And, again, I tip my cap to, to ownership for going along with it as well and for saying we're willing to invest. I think it sent a message to... Uh, the players down there that we, we're serious, we want to win. They love to see that. But it also sends a very clear message to the fans that we're, we're willing to do all we can. Our payroll is higher than it's ever been. Um, but, but you have to be careful. You can't have one player dominating the majority of your, your payroll, obviously. And, and uh, yeah, you have a lot of pieces, a lot of moving parts. But, but uh, I, I think we've, we've put together a very entertaining, competitive team. You touched on this a little bit before. When things are going well, you like to credit yeah. those in, in positions such as Tory or Mike. Uh, towards the end of Dave Stewart and Tony LaRusso's time with the club in 2016, you took accountability for some of the team's fortunes at the time. How tough is it for you personally when the team is struggling on the field, even if the culture in the offices and the, and the bottom line may be doing okay, but when, when the, you know, the thing the fans care the most about, the wins and losses, when that's not going well, how, how tough is that on you personally? It's, it's extremely difficult, uh, especially when you develop relationships. I work for these pe people closely you know, every day. Um, you think back to, to Kirk Gibson and KT, you know, I mean, we were all so close. When you have to make change, it is tough. Um, Dave Stewart, Tony LaRusa, you know, great guys, worked hard, tried hard. It's, it's the vulnerability, it's uh, in these, these positions, it's, it's wins and losses. It really is. I take, I take it very personally because 
it's so easy for me just to make a change and put all the blame on someone else, yet, you know, I'm the one that hired those individuals, right? I'm the one that agreed to the moves that they wanted to make, and, and um, yet that's the revolving door as manager, general manager, so it hurts. I mean, it's very tough, yet you know when it's time to make a change. You know, and that's really in every sport. There, there's so much volatility there, unfortunately. But you know when it's right. You know when it's right to make a change. And, and fortunately, we won't, oh, I should say, hopefully we won't have to for a long time. This baseball staff we put together now, after a lot of research, a lot of due diligence, I've got so much confidence in this group. I mean, it is just a, 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 it's a game changer. These guys, the way they go about their business, how prepared they are, the analytics that they involve, yet they have that perfect balance of understanding scouting and they understand the game, they played the game. I couldn't be happier right now than where we're setting up. What stood out to you most about Mike Hazen when you hired him as the GM? Wow. So we interviewed uh, several candidates um, under the radar. We flew, Ken and I flew to uh, Chicago. Um, we interviewed a number of candidates, and they were very strong. And we there were a couple that we were willing to hire right then. Yet I kept wanting to get Mike in the fold. And Mike at the time was going uh, through the playoffs with Boston, and I was staying in close contact with my counterpart there who fortunately gave us permission and just said let us get you know through the through the playoffs and so I talked to Mike by phone probably for an hour and I was so impressed I remember I hung up and immediately called Ken and said we got to get this guy in wait till we meet this guy so we came back here to Arizona after Chicago we interviewed our internal candidates here and then we we got Mike in and it was a Friday I was going to take he and his wife to dinner that night with my wife and he was getting right out of there on a red eye. So he came in, we spent probably seven hours with him behind closed doors. Uh, he walked out of the office to go grab his wife. We were gonna leave. I stepped out, stepped back in, and I said, Ken, what are your thoughts? And he's like, this is our guy. I said, thank you. I said, I'm gonna get it done tonight. And he says, go get it done. So we I literally went to dinner. Um, he had a car waiting for him after dinner. And uh, I said, do me a favor, when you get through security at the airport, Give me a call. It's like 10 o'clock at night. So he called me. We hammered it out over the next day or two, and it was a done deal. He, it was so clear and evident that this guy was ready and that he was perfect for the direction we needed to head. And, and so far, it's, it's, you know, it's paid off. It had been six years since the D-backs had reached the postseason before last year's wild card berth. How satisfying was it to see the turnaround from 2016 to 2017? It was fun. It was a magical year. It, something felt right. You know, we just you start off well, and you keep going, and then you... You invest in the team. You're flexible enough to invest in the team at the trade deadline and go, you know, get aggressive for J.D. Martinez. And it was just a, it was one of those magical years. And that, that wild card game against Colorado, that was a heavyweight bout. It was a slugfest. It was so much fun. You know, we, we have so much respect for the Rockies. They're, we're friendly with the Rockies. They're right here with us all spring long. Um, you know, we, we compete on the field but not off the field. We're very good. We're friendly teams. But that was awesome. And when Archie Bradley hit that triple in that game, I have never heard that, that crowd so loud. That almost place was, it, it blew the top off. almost feel like that game should have been played at Salt River Fields. Yeah, right. <laughs> that would have been too neutral. Yeah, right, exactly. In 2012, your name was thrown around loosely as a potential successor to Bud Selig. Would the commissioner's shop be something that would ever interest you? Oh, I think for any of us that, that have lived a lifetime in baseball, we would be thrilled or honored to... To one day hold that job, that position, because you can make a difference. You can make the game better. You can impact the game. Uh, you, you, it's every touch point. You know, all the players and and you know the fans and the franchises and the owners. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's an honor to even be mentioned. But uh, not I think that we're looking to push Rob out by any means. No, 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 <laughs> we don't. And, and I'll tell you what, we are in such good hands. 
I mean, Rob is Rob is brilliant and he's progressive and you know he he's I couldn't be more proud of the leadership that that he's exhibited thus far. I have so much confidence in him and where he's taken this game. I mean, they, we clearly made the right choice, absolutely made the right choice, and I hope Rob is commissioner for the next you know 40, 50 years. In 2016, you signed an eight-year extension to keep you with the D-backs till 2024. Aside from the obvious goal of wanting to see the team win its second World Series championship, do you have specific aspirations for the organization during the next seven years or so? Yeah, excellent. Six you know, years? I, yeah, I think uh, for us, we 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 want to um, we want to leave a legacy here, and I, and I think for me, it doesn't really change. I want us to be known as the best workplace. You know, I want us to have the best culture in all of sports. I want us to have the best fan uh, treatment in all the sports, and you know you, you say it's obvious, but I do want to win. You know, I want to be a I want to be a routine winner and competitor. Um, but I, I think we've done a remarkable job of, of building this fan base and building what all we have and the brand and the and the culture here. And uh, I'm just very proud. But yeah, I would like to bring home another championship. I want to see another Luis Gonzalez moment? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> God's us here each and every day, so I see him. But I I want to. I want to see another moment where, where he's in the arms of his players or someone like him. Derek Hall, President and CEO of the Diamondbacks, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate Thanks, it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Many thanks to Derek Hall for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. For our next episode, I'll be joined by Red Sox President and CEO Sam Kennedy. We'll discuss his first job in baseball with the Yankees, his time with the Padres, his decades-long friendship with Theo Epstein, why he hates the word no, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.